This podcast may include adult content. Welcome to Bound Off, a literary audio broadcast. In this edition, we have two stories, Dazi's Hair by Jeremy Wexler and Fall Down by Gavin Broom. Visit our website at boundoff.com for information about our broadcasts. Dazi's Hair, written and read by Jeremy Wexler. Listening time, 13 minutes, 13 seconds. Dossie's Hair by Jeremy Wexler Dossie is a taut-looking woman. Frown lines pull the corners of her mouth down. Her forehead is a little wide and her chin is tiny and pointed, which makes her face look like an inverted water drop. Her skin is developing the blemishes of middle age, halfway between freckles and liver spots. Dossie is resolved to how she looks. She forsook vanity easily as a girl and hasn't regretted it much. Her father loved her very much because she was so smart. That is what he valued more than anything else, so she never felt that she lacked anything being plain. She usually dresses in stark skirts and crisp shirts, which match her face and do nothing to offset her prim maiden-aunt appearance. The one unmaidenly element of her regular wardrobe, the tip-off to anyone who knows what to look for, is the tichel, which she wore whenever she left the house and often when she was in it, too. The tichel, a sort of cloth hairnet or snood, told the world what she would, until recently, have said were the two most important things for anyone to know about her. She is a modern Orthodox Jew, and she is married. Now, as she stands in front of her bedroom mirror, making a merciless, thoroughly accurate assessment of her own appearance, the tichel lies deflated on top of her wardrobe. Her dark brown hair, straight, streaked through with gray, is back in a tight bun. And it is her hair that Dossie is considering most closely. She knows that in and of itself it would not attract a man. When they were first married, Howard had liked to run his big-knuckled hands through her hair while he had sex with her. And sometimes he buried his face in it as he lay beside her after he ejaculated his hand resting momentarily on her hip. Then he would start to talk about Rabbi Jacob of Emden's autobiography, on which he had been writing his dissertation, or some piece of anti-Sabbatean polemic he had uncovered, or an under-analyzed Sabbatean counterthrust. She would point out how whatever he was talking about related to a certain trend in, Jew- in later Jewish Enlightenment thought, or harkened back to motifs from Gaonic literature's attacks on Karaism. In those moments... In the intimacy of mind, with his nose planted in her hair, she would experience the most pleasure she ever got from having sex with Howard. He did not compliment her hair during sex or ever, and Dossie didn't look for compliments on it. Her hair was plain like the rest of her, but she did feel like Howard must have liked it for him to touch it in that way. Howard's girlfriend, the one Dossie had seen, had thick, alluring hair, tresses, a word from a fairy tale. She has tresses, Dossie thought, which, of course, she was at liberty to show the world, since she was neither a Jew nor married. In the mirror, Dossie saw her eyes getting pink. Don't cry, she said out loud to herself, sternly, but not unkindly, in the voice she had used when rebuking one of her children. She had vowed that she would not cry over her divorce, over him. She touched her hair compulsively. Her daughter, Devorah, had asked if she should come home. 
There was not a social protocol for divorce as there was for death, say. No, she told Devorah, don't come, I'll be all right. Her children have lives of their own, and she doesn't want them to be angrier at Howard than they already are. None of them will speak to him. Her son Ari is the angriest, which surprises her a little, but a boy idolizes his father, and when the idol fails, it fails calamitously. Yesterday, the day Devorah had wanted to come in for, Dasi went to the rabbinic court, located in an unlovely office complex, which also housed a collection of dentists' office and chiropractors. There, Howard, the only man who had ever touched her naked skin in her life, handed her over her get, her Jewish bill of divorce. He didn't meet her eyes, but then he rarely had, even when they were married. It crossed her mind that he might be a high-functioning autistic. When she had met him in the early 70s, autism wasn't part of everyday discussion. He had been strange, but not outside the standard deviation for a whole generation of brilliant and monomaniacal Jewish men. They had, she reflected, been breeding for idiot savants in the ghettos of Europe for 500 years. But she noticed that even the three rabbis assembled to serve as a court, men who were of similar habits of mind to Howard's, seemed embarrassed. She knew two of them, not well, Rabbis Plaskow and Jacobson. The third was new to the community, and she couldn't remember his name, and he didn't bother to tell her. They were all of a slightly darker shade on the Jewish community's spectrum. Trim beards, black suit jackets, and acutely declined borsalinos. But she had seen their wives at the butchers, had met them at weddings and bar mitzvahs. There was to be none of the anonymity that a state divorce offered. As the rabbis of the Beit Dean reviewed the get, Howard gave a disquisition on late 18th century disputes over elements of the formulation of gets in Frankfurt am Main and how it reflected anxiety over the Napoleonic conquest of Europe and Jewish emancipation. She knew Howard was seething that these men who he considered ignoramuses held sway over him and his affairs. He was hoping to put them in their places by dazzling them with his mastery. And it seemed to be working because they were making knowing grunts and even low chuckles. But Dasi could see, she thought, that he was also soothing himself, holding at bay the possibility of a feeling as if he was swatting away a bird that had gotten into the lifeless room. When Howard wound down for a moment, the three rabbis seemed collectively to recall their authority as well as the gravity of the moment. Perhaps they realized that this was an occasion for awe, for the deployment of a human capacity other than intellect, and they exchanged looks with one another to see if one among them might venture to create an air of solemnity. Had it been a young couple, the wife in tears, the man raging at her, one of them might have deployed the tricks that a man who has presided over many of these things has at his disposal. But looking across the table at Howard, chewing at nothing, silently reviewing his vast inner archive of rabbinic material, and Dasi, cold, wronged, furious Dasi, the rabbis chose to revert to a sort of bureaucratic formality. She took the get in silence and went out to her car, which seemed like an unmomentous way to end the whole thing, to turn the ignition in her compact pull out of the parking lot and drive home through the bright autumn morning, her divorce in the glove compartment along with her car insurance and a ragged city map. 
Where was the sound of the altar of Zion cracking? But now, as she stood before the mirror, husbanding her resources for walking out of the house with her hair uncovered for the first time in 27 years, this seemed momentous enough. She had made her decision during the car ride home. In that short time, she had given the question careful and methodical thought, the kind of analysis her father had taught her to do, thought that came in complete sentences. There were, after all, only two possibilities, continue to cover her hair or not. Generally, we follow the principle that one ought not to descend in holiness, she had begun, signaling carefully, pulling out and driving down Mackle Road, hardly another car in sight at eleven in the morning. Since covering the hair is an elevation in holiness, we might say that a woman who receives a bill of divorce from her husband, here she could feel the tug of the thing in the glove compartment, the hook in her heart, ought to continue to cover her hair. However, the Torah tells us that it is not meet that a human should be alone. Since a woman may wish to show that she is not married in order more easily to find a husband, it is permissible for a woman who has been divorced to show her hair, if she so wishes. But as she turned onto the street where her home stood, she encountered a question to which she could not articulate an answer. Did she wish to be married again? Did she want another man? The idea of another man on top of her, his body matted in hair like Howard's, made her feel nauseous. Sex had never been rewarding for her. What had once been bearable with Howard had become increasingly distasteful to her over the course of years. Howard had sensed this and had stopped trying to coax sex from her. She had told herself that he too was growing older and probably didn't feel the absence of sex much. They had practically ceased to do it after their third child was born. Practically. She shudders as she has shuddered a hundred times when she considered that he entered her polluted by his other women. But to be honest, and she could not escape her own mind's rigorous training for truth, she had wanted to hurt him also. She had taken sex away from him because he was so absent from her, because he did not talk to her about anything other than Jewish philosophy of the 17th century. She had welcomed the conversation in the early years as evidence that they were equals. The tenor of it had somehow changed, even if the conversation, the tone of voice, everything else had remained the same. It kept her away from him. The talk formed a verbal wall a fortress into which he retreated more and more frequently. It was his body's shape when he talked, she suspected, that kept her away. Her, their children, everyone, really. He hunched. He waved his arms more than he once had, so that he seemed to be flailing away intruders. A drowning victim, drowning in talk, in himself, Wary that if any one of us came too close, he would pull us in, pull us down. And we took the hint. All of us, except his girlfriends, apparently. Dozens of girlfriends. Compulsive, crazy numbers of women. 
Yet for all that, she values the company of men more than of women. Generally, she has viewed women as objects of pity for their weakness and shallowness. Though she had a certain feminist feeling of sisterhood towards them, it was always that of a woman who sees her sister make a bad marriage or fail to get the jobs for which she is qualified. But who's made the bad marriage now, she asks herself coldly as she looks at her hard features in the mirror. Who has been pitied of late on Shabbos afternoons by the women from their synagogue? She looks at herself in the mirror and for the first time doesn't see her hair or the forehead for which she holds no affection or her unhappy mouth. She sees, almost as if, it, as if she was discovering someone else in the house when she thought she was alone, a person, a whole, complete face. That woman, Dossie, whom she had forgotten was home. What do you want, Dossie? She says to herself in the mirror. The question she's been asking herself for weeks, since the scope of Howard's infidelities became clear, and which has pressed more and more at the membrane of her consciousness since yesterday. Do you want another man? Another husband? No, she says. Having caught herself unawares like this, she answers easily. The women from Shul will have something to talk about this Shabbos when they walk to one another's homes and chat as their husbands nap before afternoon prayers, Dossie thinks. She turns away from the mirror picks up her car keys and, a light breeze playing gently over her uncovered hair, walks out the door. Jeremy Wexler is a Montreal writer. His writing is collected at jeremywexler.com. Jeremy edits the CD format magazine No Damn Good, Art, Music, and Tom Foolery from NDG. Fall Down, written and read by Gavin Broom. Listening time, 13 minutes, 13 seconds. Fall Down, a short story by Gavin Broom. The flight back home confirmed to me that not only did Tell exist, but it also operated a Glasgow to JFK service, and I was stuck in its economy class. The cabin crew had the nervous look of a group of people who had never flown in their lives and weren't exactly looking forward to the experience. The camp orange-faced steward who performed the safety demonstration had seemed so confused with the directions he was giving that I half expected him to break into the moves for YMCA. The Glaswegian kids sitting next to me, I say Glaswegian, but they really could have been from anywhere in Scotland, or maybe even Ireland, spent an eternity arguing over who was going to get the last sausage from the sweaty dinner we'd been served, while their mother sat at the end of the row drinking complimentary vodka tonics and ignoring them. To top it all off, I drank, smoked, and snorted my way through the last three months to the extent that my back ached, my hands trembled, and my head felt like it was full of melted wax. Eventually, after the longest, bumpiest eight hours of my life, the final 45 minutes of which was spent in an agonising holding pattern, we touched down at JFK. By six o'clock local time, I'd collected my luggage, cleared customs, and was met at arrivals by my mom and twelve-year-old sister. "'How's your flight look?' my mum asked as we walked to the car park. I shrugged. It was okay. My mum uses a drive back to Westhampton to fill me in on everything that's gone on since I left. Seemingly, a ton of really boring stuff has happened to a bunch of people I don't know, and she's rekindled an ancient affair with Victor, some guy who lives across the street from us. During this monologue, 
My sister nags at me for presents and doesn't accept that I am not lying when I tell her that I haven't brought her anything. You're a tease, she says with disgust from the back seat. Mom, tell Luke to stop being such a tease and give me my presents. Lauren, stop bitching at your brother, my mom scolds, glaring over the top of her sunglasses into the rearview mirror. Europe's made you pale, Lauren says, slumping into a huff. Anyway, my mom continues, eager to finish her story. Bryony has moved out west to be closer to her brother, which strikes me as being totally incestuous, but whatever. So suffice it to say that Victor and I have been spending a lot of time together over the last couple of weeks, much to the annoyance of. I gaze out of my window at the cloudless blue sky that's scarred by the vapour trails from a dozen planes, while my mother's voice merges into the drone of the car engine, and my stomach gurgles and rolls. Eventually, it looks as though something's actually written across the sky, and although I can't quite make it out, one of the words looks very much like go. When I get home, I abandon my case in my room and stand under a warm shower until the bathroom is saturated with steam. Then I shave, change into fresh clothes, and make something to eat from the fridge. I try to make a phone call three or four times, and each time I hang up before I manage to punch in the final digit. In the end, I give up and phone JD, who I arrange to meet at quarter moon at nine o'clock, and then I watch part of a grainy rerun of the Cheers pilot episode while I eat my sandwich. By the time I'm ready to leave the house, my mom has already gone out with this Victor dude, and Lauren has disappeared to the movies with her friends to see a film I'm pretty sure I saw on the plane. As I'm driving to Quatermoon, I realise I haven't slept in nearly 50 hours. GD works at Quatermoon, but he hangs out there on his days off. He claims this is why in three years he's never been late for work. When I arrive, he's already there, playing backgammon with Michael, the sole bartender on duty tonight. Shamrocks and Shenanigans is thumping out of the bar's PA system, and the big screen is showing some college football game to a smaller than average Sunday night crowd. Well, looky, looky, here comes looky, JD says when he spies me, a smile stretched across his face. He gets up and moves to meet me halfway. Hey, man, greets Michael, giving a nonchalant salute. And then a realisation flashes before my eyes. Nothing's changed. Absolutely nothing. JD's hair is still pulled back in a shiny ponytail. Michael still looks like he's just woken up. Quatermoon still feels more familiar than anywhere else on earth. It's like the last three months didn't happen. It's like I didn't go away. I can almost fool myself that he didn't back back across Europe with all its incomprehensible languages, its odd customs that involve cruelty to animals and its overpriced CDs. I didn't go for 90 days, cover 20,000 miles, spend $6,000, or visit 12 countries in three time zones. I didn't consume eight packs of Imodium, endure three stomach pumps, two generic STDs, one mugging, and zero decent steaks. I'm back. It feels like I did before I left. Nothing's been progressed, and although I knew this would be the case, I can't help but feel disappointed. JD, I say, as I shake his hand. Good to see you, man. I acknowledge Michael with a nod and a high five before he goes to the fridge to get me a beer. So, what's up with you guys? JD laughs and shakes his head. Forget what's up with us. What's up with our boy here? So you like officially Eurotrash now? Michael slides a frosty bottle of Amstel across to me and passes another to JD. Sure, I say with a smile. i got enough stories to bore you for the next ten years. You're going to be sorry you know me. Sorrier, JD says. We'll be sorrier. 
On the house, Michael says as he flicks my ten dollar bill back across the bar to me. So what about the chicks, dude? You must have scored across there with your Yankee charm. Michael, I'm a gentleman. I tell him, old coy, you know that. I take a sip from my beer and my stomach protests to such a degree that I have to drown it in another gulp. What about the Italian chicks? He looks about as animated as I've ever seen him. They must be something else, huh? And the French, Jesus, a French. No, wait, 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 wait. German chicks. His eyes look like they're going to ping out of their sockets, and he smiles and slowly nods. Oh, yeah, I've seen the videos. I'll say this, I say, wincing slightly from the pain in my gut. You haven't lived until you've been blown by a Spanish senorita. There are a few supposed knowing grunts and chuckles from the guys, and then everything just settles down. Michael moves back to the backgammon board, and JD parks his ass on the stool he was on when I entered. My grand return is over, about a minute after it began. So you've spoken to Kerry yet? JD asks as he rolls the dice. My delicate insides perform another lazy tumble. I sit down next to him and say, no, not yet. For some reason, I feel relieved that I can't quite remember what she looks like. JD moves some counters around the board. I don't understand backgammon, so the whole thing looks totally random. She's been in here a million times asking about you, he says. Oh, really? Yeah. Where were you? When you were due back? That kind of thing. First few times she seemed upset. Lately she just sounded pissed. Michael takes his turn with the dice. When he sees the result, he curses under his breath and looks to the ceiling while I try to work out why rolling a four could possibly be such a bad thing. What did you tell her? I ask, turning back to JD. I told her the truth, man, JD says, not looking up from the board. I told her I didn't have the first clue. We're shuffled out of Quatermoon just before midnight because Michael wants to get home. He's 50 bucks down to JD after a five-game losing streak, so I suspect cutting his losses has something to do with the early closing. JD tells me that the reggae band is taking a break at his place, which is code to let me know that he has some marijuana in need of scoring, but a lurch in my belly pushes me to decline, and I watch him meander away down the deserted sidewalk. Ahead of him, the lights alternate from green to red, unaware that there's no traffic to control. I have no idea how much I'd need to drink to feel drunk tonight, but decide to embrace this sense of sobriety and drive home. I'm about two minutes away from my place when a sudden burst of frenetic activity in my brain or my conscious or something makes me throw the car into a screeching U-turn and five minutes later I'm banging on the door of a house that's in complete darkness. I'm briskly led through the house and taken to the gazebo at the back of the garden, out of the way from the neighbours and out of earshot of any stirring parent who would have a strong opinion on my presence. You okay? I'm fine, Kerry says. I'm okay. Give me a minute. Her cigarette gives her away, though. It amplifies the shaking of her hand as the red cherry traces loops in the air like a firefly. She's standing in an old New York Islander shirt of mine she uses as pyjamas. It's so stretched and misshapen that I can see the top of her breast and from the knees down. Are you sure? I ask as I blink my attention back to her face. I said so, didn't I? I just need to get my head round you being here now. That's all. Please, give me a minute. She takes a greedy drag from her cigarette. If anything, this makes her worse, and her hands tremble all the more. She seems to notice this and takes a drink of what looks like a vodka and cranberry juice. It doesn't look like I've woken her up at all. Look, Kerry, I start. Almost immediately, she cuts across me, irritated. Give me a minute, Luke. 
under her breath she asks god damn it so I give her a minute then I ask are you alright stop asking me if I'm alright she hisses you disappeared for three months without warning you're back in the country for less than twelve hours again without warning you're here for about a minute and a half and now I'm supposed to believe that you're suddenly concerned about my well-being Kerry I know how this must seem to you I tell her wondering if it would be impolite to ask for a sip of her drink then why are you here she asks because look if you really knew how this seems I don't think you'd be here or maybe you would maybe that's the problem and suddenly, I'm not sure what I'd hoped to gain from this visit, or how I thought it would play out. I don't know if I wanted her to fall into my arms or punch me in the face, and I don't know how I'd have reacted had she done either. The snap in the car that forced me to swing round now feels so distant and alien that it's impossible to recreate, which leads me to one very obvious conclusion. I shouldn't have come. I'm sorry. I'm only a few steps away from the gazebo when she calls after me. That's all you seem to do these days. I turn back. What? You leave, Luke. That's all you do. I nod, smile sadly, and restart my short journey back to the car. I didn't get rid of it, if you're interested, she continues, her tone pinched with sarcasm. It got rid of me. I keep walking. I imagine her anxiously rubbing her belly where a bump would have been by now, and I imagine tears welling in her eyes. I don't look back, just in case I'm right. By 3am, I've covered about 100 miles, heading west all the way. The moonlit cityscape of Manhattan twinkling in the rearview mirror is just a memory as I plough further into New Jersey. Seeing the city, for some reason, was the only thing so far to make me question my departure and consider going home to sleep on it. But then I noticed that my stomachache, something that had been bothering me all day, had gone and that was enough to quash those second thoughts. I drove on. I need gas, so I stop in a town called Rochelle Park and fill up. When I go in to pay, the attendant looks up from his Cliff's notebook, seems surprised, and then asks me if I'm okay. His hand twitches towards the panic button, and I automatically glance up and see myself on the station security monitor. I look dead. I tell the guy that I picked up a cold in Scotland during my vacation, and he nods like the same thing happened to him last week. I buy a coke and one of yesterday's muffins that's growing stale on the counter display, as though that will confirm I'm not intending to rob him. The fresh air during the walk back to the car makes me feel a little light-headed, and for a few minutes I sit in the car with the engine idling as I contemplate finding a place to sleep. The DJ's voice on the radio sounds too familiar and reminds me of how close I am to home, so I give myself until sunrise. I'll see how far I can get in the next few hours, and then maybe I'll stop. Of course. It would help if I had a destination in mind. It would be great if I had some family in California or Canada or friends in Denver. That would give my trip purpose and focus and definition. However, I have no idea where I'm going. I'm hoping that I'll know when I get there. More than that, I'm hoping it'll happen before I run out of road. Gavin Broom lives in the Scottish countryside with his wife and his cat. He dreams of the day as writing earns him enough to buy a house at the beach. Thanks for listening to this edition of Bound Off. Copyright Bound Off and the respective authors. All rights reserved. Visit our website at boundoff.com for information about our broadcasts and how to submit your stories.